Well, y'all, welcome to the Springs as I shared. You can hear right now a bit of that background noise. What that is, is right in between here, if you don't know the breakdown here at McKenna, there's a little hallway, and then on the other side of that hallway, that is where right now first through fifth graders are getting after it is they begin to see through song, through worship, through dance, through having fun, the love of Jesus Christ and how that faith, even from a young age, it can captivate you. And from captivating, they can begin to see as I walk faithfully with my father through the years, it brings blessing and peace, wholeness and completeness. So as you sit here and I start this sermon speaking over a bit of what sounds like almost like soft keys patting in the background, right? If that distracts you, here's what I'd ask you to do. Pray for every kid in there. Pray for every single kid that they would come to know Christ from a young age. If they already know Christ, they'd be discipled in a family where they say the parent is the primary pastor. So what I mean by that is embrace the distraction. Let God use that to disciple those kids as we continue to strive to excel still more and caring for them. But where I want to start out today is I actually want to share a bit of a story, um, even as we set up kind of the book of James and where we are right now. So my wife and I, we moved to New Braunfels about a year and a half ago, somewhere in there. I came here, learned about all the rivers, all the things going on, all the outdoor access. I came from Dallas where it is like dead dirt, no trees, came here, and it's green, lush water everywhere. So obviously, I was like, okay, I got to get outdoors, got to go do something like that. I am still attempting to pick up fishing. I share that, though, because people who've gone fishing with me, here's what they really would say. John, you're much more into casting than you are into fishing, because sincerely, and today is going to kind of prove it, I am not good at this. It's not something I excel at to where I came, I got a fishing pole, a buddy of mine, he bought it for me for Christmas because he knew I was coming down here. He gave it to me. I show up, I, I go to Dick's Sporting Goods over there by Creekside. I walk in there, they have all these baits all across. I go to this clearance tub. This is right when I got a fishing pole, some line and bait. And one of, a part of my personality is I'll try anything and I'm a little stubborn. So I'm looking at this and I'm like, I could figure this out. I just throw this in there, fish bites that, I catch fish, go home, mission accomplished. So I go, I grab all these baits. Here's what happened. I then go, and I go all parts of the river. Um, I had a ton of fun doing it. I take these different baits, I'd stand there, and I'd cast, and I'd throw it. Now, I'd seen enough on, like, TV or something like that to where there's these, like, wrist motions you're sport, sort of supposed to do, and then you can, like, reel slow or then reel fast. I had no idea there's between any of it, but I'm just throwing stuff. Like I knew enough to know people had told me, hey, fish, they like to hide in cover. So where there's logs, or where there's branches, there's kind of the sense of safety. So I'd throw at this stuff, and in my mind, I'm like, I'm going to get that fish to come out. Come on, man, bite this. Hey, I got this. I'm king of the world. You guys ever heard of the Bass Master Classic? Well, it's a tournament that I can remember watching and thinking, I could do that. Not that hard. I could not do that. Not even a little bit, surprisingly difficult. All that to say is, I had a great time getting outside. I had a great time being near the water. I had a great time dreaming about catching a fish. But I literally spent close to 30 hours casting, never catching a single thing until there's actually a member of our body. I asked him, because I know he's big and efficient. I said, okay, dude, what am I supposed to be doing here? 
what am I supposed to be throwing? Because, man, I had baits and lures, and I knew top water, and I knew I'd learned enough, like, okay, there's a jig, and I could punch a jig through this, and what am I supposed to do? And this guy looks at me, and he says, just throw a Cinco. If you don't know what that is, it's this fake worm. And I was like, okay, is there like a wrist motion? He's like, no, just let it sit there. And I'm like, wait, so just grab the one that looks like a worm, just throw it there, and stand and wait. He said, oh, yeah, that's all you need to do. Went, I bought, oh, actually, he gave me one. He gave me one. I took it. I went down beside the river. I threw it. Yo, I'm not kidding. Probably within three minutes, I caught my first, and I'm telling you, it was, no, it wasn't. <laughs> but I can be that part of a fisherman. I, I, can, I can stretch a story. But all that to say is I can remember throwing it and catching what became my first fish. Now, that moment brought a lot of chaos and confusion with it. And the reason for that is, one, again, didn't know what I was doing. And two, I brought my dog, right? So all that to say is it's this monumentous moment. I'd been trying forever. And I was like, you know what? This moment's deserving of being caught on video. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you the moment where I caught my first fish and then my dog tries to catch my first fish. And then us working through that, there's a bit of a weird transition in it. It's because I literally had to put the phone down to get a hold of my dog so I could catch this monster of a fish. But all I have to say is, hey, check out this video, and then we'll come right back. First fish. Riley, get out of the water. I've been that, fishing that's my dog. For literally hours. Riley, get out of here. On this river. I don't know. Riley, seriously, beer. Oh, 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 oh. Look at that. Riley, uh-uh. Riley, no, 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 no. Riley. Riley, heel. Riley, heel, sit, sit, all right, y'all see that, see that, I'm a fisherman, Riley, no, <laughs> I'm gonna teach you dog, watch out, see that, see that dog, uh-uh, it's not yours to eat, if I knew how to cook that, and Taylor was home, you know what I'd be doing, I'd be taking you home, buddy, uh, Riley, get out of here, my first, <laughs> something, oh yeah, and then Riley's, I was like the worst fishing partner ever. All right, hey buddy. Thanks for being a good sport. I'll see you later. Swim off now. Don't be dead. And boom, he gone. Oh yeah, he's gone. Hey, Riley, seriously? You're a failure at this. Total failure. <laughs> Man, I watched that video the other day. It was, it was one of those moments where like, there's a fish, but my dog. And I realized the bait I'd finally used to catch the fish, I got the fish, and then the fish was in and of itself bait for my dog. Like, you can't get my dog to do that much, but if you show her a fish over there, man, she'll come to you, right? But it was one of those as I sat there, I thought through time after time, one, <laughs> I should never take my dog fishing again. Two, y'all see how that fish was like this big and I acted like I just landed a monster? Small things in life matter. But three, when you want to entice something, when you want to draw something out, it matters what type of bait you use with a fish. When, when you want to entice something, when you want to draw something, when you want to tempt, because again, what's fishing? You're throwing towards cover. You're pulling it out of safety to where it takes a bite, and then you latch it, and you pull it in. you got to throw bait that'll tempt it. Here's the reason I start with that story. It's because right now we're working our way through the book of James. 
We're calling this series The Worthy Work because it's addressing the theme of as followers of Jesus Christ, you have this faith in you that transforms you. That transformative faith puts you to work. This belief that you have is what drives the way that you live. We don't have to be and do certain things in order to be loved by God, have a relationship with him, spend eternity in heaven. No, you just have to believe. But when you grasp this belief, it changes you. And one of the things we're going to see, this theme that we're going to talk about, that we're going to tackle in the book of James today, is James, as he's going to talk to us about one of the things that faith does is it fights to overcome temptation. It it fights to realize that there are things in life that try to draw us out of safety. And yet, because of what Jesus would say about you, because of what he would say about me, we can overcome that. Right, so today we're going to talk about how do you and I, Christian, how do we overcome temptation? And really more specifically, I want to put before you guys this, this general premise. We, we overcome temptation by realizing, and stay with me, by realizing it's built on deception. We overcome temptation, and that's what James is going to teach us today. It's this general theme. We overcome temptation by realizing that what what is veiled behind every form of temptation is a cheap trick, a cheap imitation, and a knockoff of what is true. Deception. If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, here's what I know is true about you. You face temptation. Sometimes if you go and you hang out with folks, they can kind of give you a spiritual attitude of, no, I don't really have problems. I don't really face temptation. Here's what's true of that person. Probably well-intended, but a liar. We'll see in this text today, every person faces temptation. Here's what's also true, Christian. Temptation in and of itself, it's not a sin. What we do with it can real quickly become sin. So that's where for you and I as a follower of Jesus Christ, here's what's true. You walk through this world new. You walk through this world with what's called a regenerate heart, a heart that desires to strive towards godliness. But you have the same thing that I have, this broken tendency to go back to the darkness. This broken tendency to at times believe, you know what? Maybe it's better if I do this my way, not God's way, and give in to the temptation. So today we're going to talk about as followers of Christ, how do we overcome that? And here's why I think this matters if you're here, and you're just working through faith in general. You don't believe any of this. Your parents dragged you, your friend dragged you, your colleague dragged you, or you're coming back to church, you're working through faith, you grew up around it, and then you're like, they're a bunch of hypocrites, can't have anything to do with it, but you went through life, like Eastern mysticism didn't work out, so you're back checking it out. If that's you, here's what's also true. You face temptation, right? Whether or not you and I would agree that this is temptation or not, There are things in your life that you give into that you wish you could stop. You binge watch Netflix way too long. You eat seven baskets of chips with four things of jalapeno ranch at Chewy's rather than six baskets of chips but still four things of jalapeno ranch at Chewy's. There's things in your life that you'd like to stop too. Here's what I want to show you today. You'll leave here today with a framework for how you and I, because of James, can understand that the way we overcome temptation is by realizing it is built on 
deception. There's a cheap trick behind every bit of it. Where we're going to learn this is going to be in James chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 13 through 18. What we're going to see the deception behind it is we break down really three themes. The first one is we're going to see, hey, what is the source of temptation? Where does it come from? Where does it originate? The second thing we're going to talk about is, hey, what are the uh, steps into temptation? Temptation in and of itself, that sinful um, process, it's not a one moment, it's a slow fade. So how do we begin to understand that? And then the third, what's the solution to temptation? The book of James, if you're new to it, it was written by the half-brother of Jesus. He's writing this to a Jewish believing audience. Like the first church was gathered in Jerusalem, they endured persecution, and they scattered. He's writing this letter to them. If you missed us last week, we talked about trials. Trials being, hey, the difficulties that we face in life, things uh, external to us, circumstantial. This week, we're going to talk about temptations. The, the reason I recap last week is the word for both in the Greek, it's the same word. You'll see here, though, what James does is he totally shifts the narrative. He changes the context where before you saw like these external circumstantial difficulties. What you'll see today is really temptation comes. It's not external, but it's when things begin to provoke, bring about sin. James, man, he's a great pastor, he's a great writer, and he knows that you and I, here's why we, he connects the two themes. He knows that you and I have a tendency to make trials and respond and give into temptations. Let me give you an easy example, right? For if, maybe you are a student, maybe you're in college, or you can remember taking any test of the type. You come to an exam, it's a really hard exam, it's finals, you're nervous about it, you're worried you're going to fail. That is a trial. That is a test. The temptation then comes, well, hey, what if I cheat? The temptation then comes, right? You have no prescription for it, but what if I take some Adderall? Then I could focus, stay up for three nights straight, and then I could do it. Do you see, trial, our response can lead to the temptation. They're connected, but different. The second thing you got to see is we begin to talk about this, right? Is James, he's writing to a people who would understand. You Christian, right? There is a truth that a lot of times, especially folks, where we live in my heart, we can become. We can tend to view ourselves as more holy than what we really are. Study after study is proven. People tend to think higher of their ability, right, than what their true ability is. It's called confidence bias. For you and I, church, James is writing to this group of people because he wants this for you and he wants this for me. No confidence bias when it comes to our holiness. Here's what you must know. Is if you sit here and you believe in Jesus, you are forgiven, you are free, you are righteous, you are cherished, you are loved. There is nothing you could ever do to make God love you more or to make God love you less. You can't do it. You cannot work your way to heaven. Heaven came down to you. Heaven came down to me, and his name's Jesus. All God pleads with is believe, but from belief, from captivated faith, here's what happens, you and I, imperfectly, never having it all together, but striving as we give our life to God, become more like him and less like us. And part of that 
is having an awareness of temptation. So if you got a Bible, turn with me. James chapter 1. We're going to read verses 13 through 14. 13 through 14. And then I'm going to stop and we will talk through it. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God, he cannot be tempted with evil. He himself tempts no one. But each person... Church, that's you and that's me. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. The first point out of this text is what is the source of temptation? What is the source of temptation? Where does it come from? Can Christians stand and say, the devil made me do it? No. The source of our temptation is us. It's the evil desire that still exists. It comes from within not without. Can, can it be enticed? Of course. But it comes from within. Let, let's look at the text and, and I'll prove it to you. Coming back there to the top, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. Right, right, right immediately there, you see this tendency in sin to what I would call blame shift. It's like to where I find my sin, my, my response of anger, my desire to control a situation at work. Right, my frustration with my daughter when she's not doing what I'm telling her to do. The way that my wife, she just spoke to me in a cutting, condescending way. And I responded in anger, in validation. I responded with my kid, controlling, domineering. I responded at work with, no, no, hey, hey, it's my way. I responded with a lack of love throughout. Here's what you and I have a tendency to do, to sit there and be like, well, yeah, yeah, if you hadn't said that. Well, yeah, yeah, if she hadn't been throwing a fit for the past two hours. Or, hey, well, hey, it's really because they just did this, and I shift the blame, right? And the people right here, what James is writing to, he's writing to a group of people who they, they're blame shifting, but they're going even a step further, and they're blame shifting it on to God. The word there, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. Your Bible may say from God. It's talking about where the temptation originates, James is saying to you, and he's saying to me, you can never shift the blame on to God for your and my sin. And he goes on to tell us why. For God cannot be tempted with evil. If you remember even back when we read through the verse, each person is tempted when they are lured and enticed by what? Their own desire. Desire we'll talk about in a second. It's an evil desire. It's a broken desire. God has no evil in him. First John, it would talk about this theme of God is all light and in him there is no darkness at all. God can't be tempted because there's nothing to entice. He's wholly righteous, wholly good. He himself, he tempts no one. See, what, what is true about God is he does allow temptation. He's sovereign. He's over all things. Nothing takes place without his awareness. Right, he does allow temptation the same way he allows me to have a meaningful choice in my life. But what he never does, like a good father to a never child would, is entice them towards brokenness. What he can't do as the pinnacle and the beacon of 100% light is draw you and I to darkness. He cannot be tempted, and he would never tempt you. He loves you. He wants good for you. He knows sin brings brokenness and pain. 
but each person, each person, your Bible, again, it may say every person. It does not matter. There's an idea at times of Christian perfectionism. There's no point, Christian, there's no point, church, in, re- in which you will reach a place of sinlessness. I do believe by faith, maturity means we do sin less, right? But sinlessness is never something we attain. That's why you see verses, and we won't have it up here on your Bible, written to people, you who are standing, take heed lest you fall. The greatest thing to set up the trap door of temptation is you thinking, I'm pretty good and I got it all together. That's like the greatest tool, the greatest lure of enticing. I'm pretty good and I got it all together. Each person is tempted. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Lured and enticed. It's a fishing metaphor, right? A lure, you know what that is, right? And enticed, you're drawing something out. It's literally where you get the word picture of, hey, you take something from safety, shelter and safety. You entice it out to where it's caught and then brought to its eventual death. And what... Why do we want the lure? Why do we want to be enticed? Our own desire. The desire there, the word there, it, it's passion. Throughout most of your New Testament, it's typically used in a negative connotation, but it can be positive. What, what informs it is the context. Right here, you begin to see passion as negative, and what it's speaking to is fleshly, sinful, carnal. V- very often it's used with sexual sin, but this context, it's more than that. The thing that brings sin in my life, the thing that leads me to giving into temptation is because I want to. I have no one to blame but myself. You see, God is 100%, and we'll understand this more, 100% for the goodness, the joy, the grace, the redemptive qualities in my life, 100%. And he has 0% of responsibility for my sin. I am 100% responsible for my sin. This past week, I'd been thinking through, hey, where's a great story where I can really think through how I have nobody to blame but myself and my sin, how I am the source of my sin and my broken desires, the part of me that distrusts God and saying, your way's not good, I'm gonna go get mine. I tried to think back and I reached back and, and honestly, I had a harder time recently thinking through, man, where's a place where I just, I gave it the temptation And I would tell you, and I thought back, there's this time in dating and the story with Taylor, and it's good, and I'm going to save it for another day, because here's the truth. Found my story last night. Last night, man. I was sitting there. It was the end of the day. Had a great dinner with a group of friends, encouraging conversation. Went home, and Taylor and I, we went to watch a movie. And I'm going to tell you the movie all out myself. It's called Tag. If you want to judge me, it's rated R, right? Called Tag. Didn't pay for it. Went to watch it. It is a movie about a bunch of comedic guys who play an adult game of tag. Premise, in my opinion, you can think less of me again, it's hilarious. I'd love to watch that. Like, it's a genius idea they play tag. I I check before I go to watch it because it's R, and that triggers me. Okay, well, what's in it? I check Common Sense Media. I highly recommend it to you. And the first thing, because the lure and the bait in my life that I really have to watch is lust, sexual sin. And, And I go to the the topic where it addresses sex. And it breaks it down and it tells me, and it was one of those where in conscience, where I was like, wow, honestly, I thought it would be worse. That's, that's, there's worse than PG-13. And I go on. Here's the thing I didn't check. There's multiple other categories, right? Innuendos throughout, language, the whole thing, to where I'm watching this show, 
and Taylor and I are watching it. And I'm set up. I, I drift through. In this movie, yes, there's no crude, explicit images. But halfway through, I'm a third of the way through maybe, I begin to sit there as my wife, she's turned and she's no longer watching it. She's on her phone, but she can hear everything in the background. She's turning on it, and here's what she hears. She hears language that no Christian should, should say. Why? Not because sinning is some terrible thing, but it's because we've been made right. Let our speech be edifying and good. She hears language. She hears innuendos throughout that even though there's no graphic moment, there's things that Jesus died for that they're making jokes about. Christian, I'm not saying you have to destroy every entertainment choice. I'm not saying that if you've seen Tag, you're a terrible person. But here's what I'm telling you. In that moment, the temptation happened when I thought, I could watch that and be fine. My broken desire knew, hey man, this is something I should stay away from. And I wanted it. I wanted to watch it. And it took me probably 40 minutes until the Holy Spirit came and went, John, what are you doing, man? What are you doing? And there was a moment in looking at my wife in the changing of the channel. I'm not saying that movie is inherently wrong, but I could make a pretty strong argument. I'm not saying that movie is inherently wrong. What I'm saying is I was becoming more and more wrong. The source of temptation is from within. You have a new heart, a new life, a new drive towards godliness. But there is what the Bible would call a flesh that hangs on. And James is saying, in order to overcome temptation and understanding the deception that lies behind it, you got to realize that the source is from you. Let's keep looking. I'm going to read again verse 14 and 15. We're, we're going to jump back. James chapter 1. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. These two verses are absolutely brilliant. Brilliant. The second topic I want to talk about, the second theme I want us to examine out of this, this section of James is the steps into temptation. The steps into temptation. It, it's, not, it's not an instantaneous moment. It, it certainly can be. I'm sure you could come up with an example where I'm wrong. But by and far, it's a slow fade, a slow bleed where there's this progression of what becomes. Looking at the text, we talk through verse 14, verse 15, then desire. It's the same desire that can be neutral, but our heart will make it negative. James switches from a fishing metaphor to a birthing metaphor, right? He, he's essentially going to show what is the genealogy, what is the family hierarchy of sin. Because what he's trying to tell you is here's where all sin leads here is its broken family tree in corrupted genealogy. He sets it up, verse 15. Then desire, so remember that. When desire, when it has conceived, that's acting upon it, has conceived, it gives birth to sin. Right, so desire, it gives birth to sin. And then sin, when it is fully grown, it's talking about then sin grows. What does sin always do? especially in darkness, it grows. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Death. 
At times when you say that, people can tend to be like, wow, that seems a little dramatic. And here's what I tell you, no, it's not. Here's why. One, I would absolutely put before you sin can lead to literal, physical death. Right? You can think of everything right now. Right? Imagine, um, what's some good easy ones? Alcoholism, drug abuse, right? mental illness, depression, viewing oneself as broken rather than viewing oneself as made in the image of a creator and where brokenness and anxiety and stress can take you to where suicide rates have never been higher. Sin can absolutely lead to physical death. And then you meet people who are entrapped in sin and even physically their body, it manifests itself in a sickness and they're a shadow of what they want to be. They're a shadow of the peacefulness that Christ would have them be. But it's also, it's also spiritual death. Now I have to be, I have to be careful with this because it, it is true, it leads to a spiritual death and that if you choose to deny Jesus Christ, he will Honor your request that in the next life, he will not force you into a relationship with him. He will give you what you want, and you wanted not him. So he will create an eternal separation from you. But there's also, for those of us who are Christians, the spiritual death that can come. It's for you and I. Here's what's true, church. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you have believed in him for the forgiveness of your sins, and that has captivated you. Your relationship with God can never die. Spiritual death in that moment, it takes on more, not a loss of relationship, but a change in fellowship, intimacy. Like my daughter Lily will never stop being my daughter, no matter what she does. But by her actions, can she choose to say to me, I want nothing to do with you, and by her choices, can she hurt me? Can it displease me? Yes. Spiritual death. But here's the thing that James really outlines for you and for me, is he gives us the framework. He, this is literally the moment where he says, hey, if you want to anticipate the trap door, here's how you do it. There's four words I want you to remember, and they come from everything James says. The first one, every process, every step into temptation, excuse me, follows this framework. It starts with desire. Desire. Desire doesn't have to be a wrong thing. Desire can be, I'm hungry, so eat. I'm thirsty, so drink. I'm tired, so sleep. Right? That, that's not inherently wrong. But where it's different is, hey, I'm hungry, go eat, and go eat becomes, what if I could find myself in the comfort and the identity of food? Right? What, what if really, and, and you could go on, the desire for community is a good and right thing. God made you in his image and he exists in community. But then it becomes, well, hey, loneliness on Friday night. How do I not trust in God to be my community, but how do I go take that? How do I go find somebody, go flirt with somebody, drink something to where inhibitions are lowered, there's a comfort level that I can trust? You see, we, we take a neutral desire and we can make it negative. And the reason we do that is the second D, deception. Deception. You see this theme set up, and he'll expound on it in our next verse where we'll say, do not be deceived. He'll literally speak to it. But it's based on the premise of, hey, you're lured and you are enticed. It's where, it's where something comes in and they tell you either one of two things. God is not for you. He's not good. Like, I, can, you, can you really trust him? 
is he really out to bring blessing and not withhold? That's always the way one of it goes. Or the second, his word is not true. His word is not true. And any deception hinges on that to where you take a, where you take a natural desire. My desire last night was just to have a relaxing evening with my wife. That's not wrong, but then the comfort of, well, hey, maybe I could, and the deception of, well, hey, flirting with sin, it's not that bad. I should be all right. The deception comes in. The third step in that framework, it's the disobedience. This is when you see in the text, desire conceives, gives birth to sin. It's, it's the acting upon, acting upon it. And then what happens when unattended to with things like repentance, confession, community, and support, acknowledgement before God, before others, and a prayer for the soul? What does that grow into? Death. Death. You, you see this model, I'll prove it for you. You see this model right from the beginning in the garden. right? If you don't know your Bible all that well, the story will be a little different. But for those of you who do, Adam and Eve, you generally you know the story. Eve, she saw that the fruit was good. Right? She desired to be wise, wanting to eat and desiring to grow in a knowledge and a wisdom, not inherently wrong. What's the deception that twists? The serpent comes in and begins to, one, twist. Did God really say? Can his word be trusted? That's the deception. And then the second one is a serpent begins to speak to Eve and he says things like, hey, hey. I think God's withholding that from you because then you will become like God and be like him, knowing the difference between good and evil. Is he really for you? Does he withhold from you? Is he looking to rip you off? Is the life of a Christian a life of boring bondage to some holiness cop in the sky? No. Deception. What happens then? Eve, she takes of the fruit and she eats it and she gives it to her husband. Disobedience. And you see it there in the garden. What happens in the disobedience? It grows into death. There's a spiritual fracture that Christians have commonly called for centuries. The fall that leads to an absolute change in the relationship between God and humanity and to their eventual physical death. Death did not exist before that. This framework is true every time. A story I've shared here before, even about my own life, I want to I share it through a different lens. My life in college, I, I would have said I was a, a Christian if you'd asked, and nobody was asking me. But I would have said I was a Christian. But my life, man, it was marked by pain and brokenness. Right? I'd been addicted to pornography for 10 plus years. Right? Terrible relationships with females, trying to find validation, trying to find comfort, trying to feel better about myself, feel insecurities. Terrible relationships with females. This desire to be, hey, how do I be life of the party? Right? Leader of the fraternity. How do I do all? I bought the lie, hook, and sinker, y'all. Three years in it, man, I'm just broken, I'm busted, I'm depressed, it's worthless. I went to a Christian conference. At this conference, this pastor, he stood up, he preached this message, and at the end of the message, I remember thinking to myself, I don't think I'm a Christian, right? At the end of it, because it's this huge conference, you go to these breakout rooms, I went to my breakout room, and there's this pastor there, but before I can get to the pastor, I had to tell this small group, I told this small group, their eyes got like this big, and then they asked me, why do you think that? And I told them about, well, hey, here's what I've done in the past month, and then their eyes got even bigger, and they said, well, I'd go talk to that guy. <laughs> right? So I go, I talk to that guy, and bless that guy's heart, man. He, I bet he had a long day, right? It was a rough moment. I bet my language was confusing because it can be confusing. So ownership is on me. I share that because he could have cared for me better. 
right, I went to him and he shared and I began to talk through and he shares different things and, and I got counsel. And here was my counsel, literally. Take cold showers. When you feel tempted, and maybe he knew I was kind of overweight and trying to lose weight, and he was like, when you feel tempted, do push-ups. Seriously? Or, hey, if you're at a party and you're feeling tempted, jog home. He lo- I hate jogging. He totally lost me there, right? <laughs> totally lost me. Right? Here's the reason I share that story with you is what, what was the immediate thing I needed him to help me figure out? What do you love? Do you love Jesus or is he a tyrant? You think you're supposed to obey and follow like a cruel king. I need his help to become a Christian, right? But, but set that aside, and that's the primary solution that I need in that moment, but set that aside. When you think about desire, deception, disobedience, death, all of his thoughts, all of his counsel came at the level of disobedience. Change this action to that action. Change that action to this action. At the level of disobedience, church, we are way too good at doing this. What I needed was him to help me trace back, hey, what's the deception you're believing? What's the desire you're really trying to fill? Because what, what drove that desire was this innate sense of, man, it'd be really nice to just feel loved. And like, I don't have to work for it. That I could finally know, man, somebody's just there, and I got it. Love. What was the deception? Hey, I can go and take that through the life of the party, through relationships. If I got the girlfriend, right? Or, or, or for some of you, man, if I could just be married, that's a lie from the pit of hell. I, I, I didn't need the help at the disobedience level. I needed the help at the deception and the desire. But most of all, I needed help in the section that James addresses next. Let's jump back in. James chapter 1. We're going to look at verses. I closed my Bible. We're going to look at verses uh, 16 through 18. 16 through 18. Do not be deceived. That's the deception. My beloved brothers. I'm putting before you, that's a summary statement. That's his transition of before his deception, what comes after? Beloved family of God. Every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Here's why I love this part. The third section is we begin to break down, as we begin to understand the way that you and I, we overcome temptation is by realizing that behind it is deception. The third way that we really begin to formulate how to do that is we find what is the solution. The solution. You see, this text before, people had been shifting blame onto God for their sin, not taking ownership for, and the whole time they're trying to blame God, James is now setting up for them. There's no one more loving, more caring, more for you, more committed to you than God. You see, every temptation hides behind a cheaper version of what is meant to be found in Christ. Every temptation hides behind a cheaper version of what is meant to be found in Christ. And so what is James doing? The way that temptation becomes less is you and I realize God is more. The solution to our temptation. He starts, hey, don't be deceived. Don't don't be led astray, my beloved brothers, Right, he's picking up language that his big brother Jesus had used. Beloved, it means dearly loved. Why is he calling us brothers? Because if you believe you're made into the family of God, you're an heir, you're adopted. 
He's saying, don't be deceived, dearly loved child of God. Don't buy the law. He sets up every good, and man, he even uses alliteration, and every perfect gift is from above. Every form of goodness you can experience in this life is a gift and a grace from the Father above. Every form of perfection and completeness comes from him. It's not you and I trying to claim it on our own. It's not you and I making sure we get ours. It's by realizing he gives everything. Every good and perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights, the Father of lights. So remember I said at the beginning, James, he's writing this to a Jewish audience. He's writing this to a group of people who would have understood that the Father of lights was an ancient Jewish title for God, referencing his power as creator over all. What he's saying here is he's referencing this title of God's ability to provide and bring, and then right before it, he put coming down from the Father of lights. This is why when you read, ask God to bring things to you as you read it. Coming down, right? For those of you who remember grammar, maybe you're a teacher, it's a present participle. It ends in I-N-G. It's James saying the Father of lights is constantly, continually giving good and perfect gifts to his beloved family, church. That's you. That's me. With whom, and then he goes on to support it, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God has no shadow. He's holistically light. There's no var- he cannot change. God cannot come to you one day and be good and the next day come and treat you the way some of you, you would never say this, but I know this is kind of how you feel. God kind of looks at you with the sense of dance, monkey, dance. Here's a hoop, jump. No good father would ever treat their child that way. That's not God. He does not change. He's no shifting shadow. There's no variation to his eternal attributes. It's against his character. Even if he wanted to, and he never would, he can't. For God cannot be tempted. Oh, I'm sorry. Looking back down. Verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. What is the word of truth? The word of truth, church, it's the gospel. If you don't know what the gospel is, it just means good news. I've heard it said it's not good news, it's the best news ever told. Right, but it's the reality of what's true. What proves that the solution to temptation is God? What proves that God is the giver of all good things? What proves you're not going to be able to find life, purpose, satisfaction, lasting comfort, contentment apart from him? He can't give you what's not true. It's because he gives the gospel. He came and he sent us on Jesus Christ to die for you and to die for me. That every bit of brokenness, his reality and knowing, hey, the night before, his heart's going to lean and flirt with sin when he's got no business of doing it. And the next day, he'll come and he'll plead with folks, don't lean in to sin. He knew that. He knew what's to come. And he paid for it all. And all he asks of me is believe. That's the word of the truth. The gospel. That's what he asks from you, and it came of his own will. See, feelings, feelings are what get you and me into trouble. Feelings are real, but they're not reliable. My feelings of, well, hey, I gotta get what I want. 
hey, my feelings of, well, my daughter just keeps throwing fits, so therefore I'm entitled to, hey, my wife won't treat me like this, therefore I'm entitled to, hey, work should look like this, therefore I'm entitled to, feelings. God is not led by his feelings, and his feelings are holistically righteous. What brought the word of truth? It, it was his will. The gift given to you and to me. Why? So that we might be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. Remember, he's writing this to a Jewish audience. Some of you may have known there was a festival where first fruits, it, it was one day. It's essentially this pinnacle of, right, the Israelites would have gone, they would have gathered their harvest, and the best of the best, they would have come as an act of obedience and as an act of worship and said, God, you get our best. And what is God saying? He's not saying, hey, come and give me your best. Stop giving into temptation. No, he's coming and he's saying, the good gift that I'm giving you by the word of the truth is I have made you, church, my first fruits among the creatures. You are my best. My beloved family. Guys, a solution to temptation for you and me. Realizing that behind every moment of temptation, there's this cheap, broken, false trick of deception. It's realizing, man, there's such a better love. There's a better life. That even in the moment when I don't feel it, even the moment when it feels like pure choice, not led by feeling, God is better than whatever my sinful desire can offer. I will trust him even if it doesn't make sense, even when I don't want it, because he is good. There's a way that seems right to me, but its way is the end of death. The solution to temptation is when you and I realize he's good and he loves you. And loving him will be the greatest adventure of your life. Don't try to find life in your spouse. Don't try to find life in getting a spouse. Don't try to find life in your kids. Don't try to find life in being a good student. No. You find it in realizing the king has made me a prince. The king has made me a princess. I'm his. So as we think through, how do we overcome temptation by realizing it's built on deception? The thing you and I, we have to understand, James wants us to have a death grip on what brings life. He wants us to know what's the source of temptation. We can't blame anyone. It comes from inside. We must deal with the desire. The second thing he wants for you and he wants for me is not just the source, but hey, what are the steps? How do you and I grow to where we wage war smartly, wisely, strategically, not just lambs led to slaughter, but people who understand, oh, oh, I feel the drift. I feel the tug of temptation. Okay, catch the lie. And what's the third? The only thing that holistically and effectively really leads to long-term prevailing faithfulness is knowing the solution. The solution is God is better than the next car that I'll ever get that's really nice that I've saved up for, the boat that I wish I had, the neighborhood that I wish I lived in, the desire that, oh, if I can just get my kid into this college or this school, or if my kid could just be this way, oh, if I could just have a marriage that was better like this. I'm not saying any of those things are wrong. They're just not good enough. 
the only good enough and great and lasting thing in your life and mine, the solution to temptation, is by knowing God is for you. His word can be trusted. He's the greater love. So here's what I want to ask you and me to do. First thing, church, and I thought about this, is as you think through this text, I bet if James, right, he would have came, he would have wrote this letter, and I bet if he went and he hung out with folks, he would have had this discussion, what we'd probably call like a Bible study or a community group or something like that, and they'd sit there, and the first thing they'd break down is, hey, what, what do you think lures and entices you? What, what are the things in your life at that deception level, that disobedience level we need to look out for? If you don't know what your lures are, you are probably getting caught consistently. Does that make sense, church? Right? If you don't know what your temptations are, you're probably getting caught consistently. So sitting down and thinking through, what are my trap doors? Where do I give in? Because we can all give in to a lot of things. Right? But we, we have some general patterns. If you don't know, ask your community group, ask your spouse, ask your kids. I thought through this even as I think about the springs. And here's some general themes that church, honestly, these are what I think, like, like corporate body-wise are our lures. I think our lures can come in indifference and apathy to God. He's okay with. I think we tolerate that in a way that James would come and say, folks, let's go. Indifference and apathy. I think another one is we place a ton of value, and we've never really say it this way, but we really do get caught up in this suburban American dream, middle class generally, and I know some folks aren't and some folks aren't. I, I get all that. I'm saying generally. Lifestyle. And if I can be the world's greatest parent with the world's greatest kids with the best job and go along and get along and do well enough, and we buy that lie. I think another one is control. I think many of us in this room, myself included, it's a major issue, but we would never call it that. We would, we would never self-assess as, hey, I have a tendency to be a control freak. When many of us, most of us, do. No. Where the spirit of the God is, you hold loosely. You don't cling tight. So church, what are your lures? What are your lures? The second thing is coming and saying, hey, with those lures, what's that lie I'm believing? What is that deception? To overcome the temptation, you have to realize it's built on deception. So begin to break down the lie, define the deeper desire, and then root the desire in Christ. Anywhere else, it's cheap, it's shallow, and it won't last. I remember, uh, we'll close with this. Growing up, the school I went to, every year we always read a section, or excuse me, a book, or I should probably say a play, not very culturally aware, of William Shakespeare, Billy Shakespeare. We had to read one every year. We went through all these different kinds. We set them all up. It was super hard, confusing, misunderstanding. And I can remember eighth grade, we read Romeo and Juliet. Right? I can remember reading that. And my teacher, her name was Mrs. Harton, right? we'd sit in class and everyone had to read. You picked a character for the day. I don't know if she just didn't want to have a lesson plan or she didn't trust we'd read it at home or what it was, but everyone picked a different character and you sat there and you read it. And I don't remember if I had a character, I don't remember if I had something I had to read that day or what, but I can remember reading that. And I can remember the start of Romeo and Juliet. 
Like it kicks off. There's into, if you don't know it, it's into act one and it starts to pick up in act two because Romeo meets Juliet in act two, scene two. Right, but before that, you saw Romeo, right? And I can remember being so confused because Romeo, he wasn't all about Juliet. Anybody remember who Romeo was all about? Yeah, me neither. I had to look at that. No, I had it. I had it in my head. Rosalind. Y'all remember Rosalind? The start of Romeo and Juliet, you begin to see Romeo, and he's pining after this girl, Rosalind. You see, I didn't understand the book well enough, but I can remember starting it being confused by, wait, 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 Romeo and Juliet, not Romeo and Rosalind. Right? And I can remember there are sections where you see Juliet, and they're building towards each other where he looks up and he sees her on a trellis as he snuck out outside the house. He's all about Rosalind until what? He sees Juliet. Here's what he says. This is Romeo speaking. Enter Juliet above her window. Romeo looks up at her through the night, moonlit sky, but soft. What light through yonder window breaks. It is the east, and Juliet is the sun. Arise, fair sun, kill the envious moon. Who's the moon? Rosalind. Romeo is overcoming this lesser love with what? Greater love. Arise, fair sun, kill the envious moon. And then he goes to talk about, man, poor girl Rosalind. She really gets it rough here. Who is already sick and pale with grief, but thou her maid art far more fair than she. That's Billy Shakespeare's way of saying, dude, Juliet, you are super hot and I'm into you. Rosalind, nice knowing you. But thou, her maid, art far more fair than she. Be not her maid, since she is envious. Her vestal livery is but sick and green. Church, just remember this. And none but fools do wear it. Cast it off. Juliet, it is my lady. Oh, it is my love. How does Romeo get over Rosalind? He finds a greater love. He compares that, oh, is but sick but pale. Oh, thou art far more fair than she. Church, the way you and I, we overcome temptation, the deception behind it. Yes, go to war with it. Yes, put your sin to death. Crucify the flesh. But the way you and I, we win that war is by realizing, Jesus Christ, you are far more fair than any temptation, any tendency, any brokenness in my life. You are far more fair than my desire to find comfort and identity through a relationship because I'm just so scared to be lonely. You are far more fair than me to just go along and get along in a marriage that's mediocre at best, but I want to put up this front to New Braunfels shirts, San Marcos community of we're doing great. You're far more fair. I don't care. I want a marriage that glorifies you, not one that just gets along. The way you and I we overcome the temptation is by realizing it's built on the deception. Every deception, every deception will put two things in contrast. Your and my love, trust, confidence in God, in Christ and what he's done versus maybe he's not that good. Maybe he's really not true. Maybe it's really not right. Church, Win that war by realizing Jesus Christ is far more fair.
than anything you and I can desire. Let me pray that we would do that. Father, I thank you for this text. I thank you for that your Holy Spirit put me in my tracks last night. God, would you help that to be faster? Would would you get it down faster? May I not choose the movie faster? I want to want you more. God, I thank you for the truth that is your people. You put in us like a homing beacon, a desire to become like you, yet we still live in a fallen body, in a fallen world, and we do try at times to turn. Open the eyes of our heart that we might behold the wondrous things of your word to understand that in your presence there's goodness, that we don't have to take it. Help us to actively realize in the moment of temptation there's just a cheap deception behind it. But what is no deception is your love for us. May we cling to that. God, I ask you to bless these people, that you, that you would protect them from the evil one. May they grow in a faith and a desperate love of you, and may I do the same. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, y'all, thank you guys for coming. You guys go. Have a great week of worship. We'll see you next week.